So as we open God's Word this morning, I just wanted to say, my name is Carl. Um, For those of you who are new at Rock Hill Chester Park, I've been a part of Rock Hill now for about, well, I say about five years. Um, I'm on what's called the uh, preaching team, because as you notice, I am not Pastor Dean. Um, And so he's on vacation this week, and so... uh, as, as one of the blessings of having a team of people where we get together and we talk about the, the, the passages every week and, and brainstorm ideas, it gives us other opportunities to preach and allows our pastors to um, go on vacation, as Dean is today. So for better or for worse, here I am this morning, so hopefully we'll handle the God of word, word of God well. Um, and so as we start this morning, we are in week five, as we said, reading from Deuteronomy which is the last book of what's called the Pentateuch in the Old Testament, or, the, or in other words, the first five books of the Bible that were written by Moses. And so we've only been able to go through a small portion of each book, and if you've been kind of following on and reading, um, we're not through that much of the Bible itself. But there's so many rich stories in just these first five books that show the love and the provision of God towards his people as well as showcasing his wrath and his judgment and his hatred towards their sin and the sins of other nations. And so these books, um, these first five books are like the cornerstone of the Jewish faith as well as ours, our Christian faith based in the New Testament. The prophets throughout the rest of the scriptures will often reference the law, the Exodus story, and as well as the covenant given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. The New Testament writers will reference often these very same events and using them to remind us of God's faithfulness over and over and over and over again throughout all of Scripture. And, all, and these, these books even have the promises of a Messiah in the, in the future as they call on the people of Israel to repent of their sins and turn back to God through the rest of Scripture. In the book of Hebrews, um, the Apostle Paul shows how Jesus fulfilled the written law. And the law helps us understand the true perfection of Jesus and helps us understand the real significance of what he did when he came for us and how he fulfilled the law in, in, in the gospel. And God himself says of these first five books in Joshua 1.8, Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. And even our call to worship text this morning from Deuteronomy 6, it says these commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. And so as God says those things, we have to, whenever we read those passages, I want us to keep in mind the fact that the Israelites only had this much of Scripture. And we have the rest of it to this, to this day. This book is to be on our hearts. And that's the idea of this thread series as we're going through this, that Jesus is in every single one of these pages. Every book, every story, Every prophet, every, every prophecy, every psalm, he's in every single one of these stories and he knits it all together and he is still working in our lives here and today. And so that's why we thought as a church it would be really important to take a different look through scripture to see Jesus because he is the center of everything that we do today. And just as it was the responsibility of every person in Israel to know the law and keep its ways, it's also our responsibility to do that today. Their prosperity in the new land, in Israel, in the promised land, depended on it in this very point in history. And so that's why Moses spent his very last words on earth as the leader of Israel and of his life, restating the story of the people uh, through their wandering in the wilderness. Because as the video said, these people um, had come through the wilderness about 40 years. The previous generations who had sinned against God 
um, had passed away, and now this new generation was ready to take the promised land. And so with his last address to the people of Israel, Moses starts to recount the story of everything that had happened and that, uh, from, when, from when God called the people to leave Mount Sinai and then head towards the promised land. So he recounted the distrust they had of the Lord that the people had after the spies returned from scouting, which led to their wandering in the wilderness. They didn't trust God that he would actually have the power to overthrow the people that lived there. He recounted the many points of the law, including the dangers of idolatry and the importance of remembering who God is, so that they would not forget the significance of who they were to worship. He repeated the Ten Commandments to the people, since none of the Israelites that remained were actually present at that event when they were physically written down by God on those two stone tablets. And he, and he um, reemphasized how quickly the people turned away from God and made a golden calf while Moses was up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. And they worshipped an idol in the very presence of the living God himself at Mount Sinai. And that then brings us to the passage that we're looking at today. He's kind of wrapping up one of these patterns of remember what God did, this is what God thinks about that, and then now this is what we should do about it today. And that's where our passage picks up the story. And so you could title this passage, The Purpose of the Law, or you could title it, The Heart of the Law. My Bible says, The Fear of the Lord. And so if you're looking for that few-line summary of all of God's law, this and Deuteronomy chapter 6 are really good passages to look at. They get at the heart of what God has been communicating to his people all throughout the scriptures up until this point. Fear God, love God, and do what he commands. Those are the three things that God, in summary, would have us do with our lives. And so the message of Moses is shifting in this section from we should have been destroyed because of our sin. God should have just struck us down right there to when he says the Lord has chosen us above all nations to be his people. So let's live in a way that honors his, that commitment to us. So how do God's people do that? Verse 12 shows us. It says, fear the Lord your God. Walk in all his ways. Love God above all, serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and keep his commandments. And so there's a lot to each of these points, and I think the reality is we could probably have a five-week series just on this verse alone in verse 12 of what it means to do all the various different things, and to be honest, we could probably even have a whole seminary class on it. So we've got only about 20 minutes or 30 minutes this morning, so we're going to run through them a little bit fast, um, but, and I want to really actually take some time here to focus on the first one. Fear the Lord your God. What does that mean? It's actually mentioned twice in this passage, if you pay attention, in verse 12 and in verse 20. And it's no accident that Moses mentions fearing God first when you look at this passage. Because if you get the first one right, if the Israelites get the first one right, if they fear the Lord, all of the other requirements of God and all of what he asks them to do will start to fall into place naturally from there. You won't keep God's commands if you don't understand how to serve God with, with all your heart and worship Him. You won't understand how to have worship of God central to your life if you don't love God above all else in this world. And you won't know what, it's, what it means to set your affections on the Lord and on Him alone if you do not understand, mean what it, understand what it means to walk in His ways. And you won't walk in obedience to God if you don't understand what it means to fear Him. So let's start there. Let's start at the beginning. What does it mean to fear the Lord your God? And why does he need to be feared? It's not something we often talk about these days. One commentator that I read says, The fear of the Lord your God means to hold God in awe 
and submit to him above all else. Which is a little bit simplistic, but I think it starts to really hit at the heart of it. But because of his character, because of who God is himself, we must revere God and we must not take his presence lightly. And to help show why we should fear the Lord, I actually want to bring us to the New Testament for a few minutes and look at a passage where the fear of the Lord is very real and very tangible and, how, and I'm hoping that that will help us see why God is worthy of fear. And so I'm going to actually go to Matthew chapter 28 and I'm going to read in verse 1. And it says this, After the Sabbath, at the dawn on the first day of the week, so this is uh, right after Jesus was crucified, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. And there was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. And the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And so let's look at these guards. So these guards that Pilate put at the tomb were the elite of the elite. They were like the Navy SEALs of the day. They had the most rigorous training. They had the most um, insane uh, set of ideals and what they were held to as soldiers. And so the worst case scenario right now going on for the Romans was that people would come in the night, Jesus' disciples would come in the night to the tomb after he'd been crucified. They were, they were probably going to steal the body of Jesus and start some sort of resurrection rumors about him. And, so they were, and then there'd be hope springing up again. There'd be people rising up. That movement would be rising up. And they had just worked so hard to squash. And so the Romans wanted it to be done. They wanted it to be finished forever. They wanted it to be over. And just pages in history that would soon be forgotten. And so they sent an elite squad of soldiers to the tomb to guard it day and night with the seal of their very lives on the line for that. So if anything goes wrong here, if that does happen, if Jesus' body is, disappears, it's not just going to be a, a news story in the paper in the morning. It's not just going to be, a, and there's going to be no opportunity for them to explain what happened. If something goes wrong, they're going to lose their lives. And so there probably wasn't any joking around with this crew that night. There were no breaks. There was no trading off. They weren't going to trust their lives in the hands of some, somebody else and hope that they weren't going to fall asleep. Everybody knew if that stone moves, we're all dead men. So that was the tone at the tomb. It's very serious, it's very somber, and it's very intense. And then when the angel of the Lord appeared, all of that changed. Because his appearance was like lightning, and they had never seen that before. And his clothes were radiant. He just shows up, this being of God flicks this massive stone away, and then he just sat on it. And I'm like, what do you think about that? What are you going to do about that, guys? Like, just with a breath of his uh, mouth, he just moves the stone. And you know what they didn't? They didn't really think anything about that. The passage says they just fell on the ground like dead people in fear. Because when God shows up, people melt at his presence. And when he comes in true might and in true power that only he possesses, people, no matter how powerful they think they are, will be afraid. And when God comes in our midst, and this wasn't even God to keep in mind. This was just somebody who was in the presence of God. And when God comes in our midst, people and even battle-hardened Navy SEALs 
who have seen everything with orders of their very lives at stake, will fall to the ground like dead men. Moses had to hide behind a rock at the burning bush so that God could just pass by his glory with his back turned to him. And the angel was just sitting there hanging out when the ladies come walking up. And can you imagine walking up on that scene as you see these guards just sprawled out on the ground at these elite Roman people and then this radiant angel of God sitting on a massive two and a half ton stone. What, what, you're you're going to be wondering what's going on. And in verse 5, the angel says to the women, do not be afraid. And now these are always the beginning words when God, of God when great things happen. Because when God moves, as we said, people are afraid. And you might be saying in your, in, in your mind this morning, well, we shouldn't be afraid of God. Why not? If God showed up here in this room right now with even one millionth of his glory, everyone in here would be afraid. And you might be saying, oh no, he's my, he's my good, good father and I'm loved by him. And, and you are, you are loved by him. But you would be on your face loved by him going, I know you're my father, but I don't really want to look up right now. I know you're my father, and I know you love me, but I, I feel something, and it's scary. Like, I feel brightness, I feel weight, I feel unmatched beauty, I feel holiness and perfection, and I, I feel the darkness and the, and the disgusting grossness of my sin being exposed, and I don't really want to look up and see what's going on right now. God isn't your bro. He isn't that nice guy that just lives down the street that he's easy to have a conversation with. and He's not just some far-off spirit realm that we bring up when it's convenient to get our point across to people. He is, as this passage says now back in Deuteronomy, he is the Lord of lords. He is the God of all gods. He is mighty and awesome. To him belong the heavens, the earth, and everything in them. He is all-powerful, and he is worthy of every praise we can give. He is perfectly righteous, perfectly good, perfectly just, and perfectly holy and high and almighty. So we fear God with a holy reverence because he's worthy of it. The people of, and the people of Israel in, this, in Deuteronomy were, were to be living in that presence of God. They had been following that presence of God, and he was leading them into the promised land, and they were to be the ambassadors to the rest of the world of the, of the, the presence of God, and that is not something that they were to be taken lightly. He is a holy God with no blemishes, and he is perfectly righteous and acts only in accordance with what is right according to him, and he is his own final standard. And because of that holiness as well, he is a jealous God, And he will earnestly protect his own honor by punishing sin in his wrath. And he, in the end, he is going to utterly destroy all sinfulness and all evil and all unforgiven sinners. Which gives us, sinful people, a very good reason to be afraid and to fear him. And to hold him in high respect and in awe and in wonder. That's why he gave Israel the law. That's why all of these statutes and all of these important rules were put in place. If they were to live in his presence and to be in the presence of God, he could not allow them to worship other idols and defile his glorious name like the other nations that they were about to drive out of this promised land that was promised to Abraham so many generations ago. And so even though those of us who are in Christ today 
are free from God's wrath because of Jesus, and we'll get to more on that later, we must still approach him with a sense of fear and awe and wonder every single day, just as Moses commanded the Israelites. That command is still for us today, even though that we are allowed to go under his wing of protection, as it says in, in the scriptures, and, for, and, and to be intimate with him and to be present with him at all times, we still need that sense of awe and fear. And so as we understand that, and I wish I could do more justice to it, and we understand the fear of the Lord, we will then understand the gravity and the urgency of walking in obedience and needing to circumcise our hearts, as it says in verse 16. He says, Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer, people of Israel. And Moses used this language because it carried tremendous significance in their minds, because circumcision was a physical sign of the covenant between them and what God had given to Abraham originally in, in Genesis. It was meant to physically set apart the Israelites from the other nations physically. And it's, but God also wanted their hearts their, to match that physical set, setting apart. He wanted Israel's hearts to be set apart for him. In other words, the Lord is worthy to be feared and awed because of his righteousness and holiness. So don't live in rebellion to his will anymore. We need to cut, excuse me, cut away all of the sin and the evil from our hearts and live as a different type of people if we're going to be living with the presence of God with us. Living in rebellion to God may seem like the better and easier option in our lives in a lot of days, but it will lead to our destruction in the end. His law and his commands are for our own good. He designed us. He designed this earth. He knows what he designed us to do. So his rules are for our own good. And the same character traits of God that cause us to be rightly afraid of him are the same traits that allow us to trust that he's actually got our best interests in mind when he says it. Jackie Hill Perry at Passion this year actually said it very well. And this has stuck with me every single day since I heard it. If God is holy, and he is, that means he cannot sin. And if God cannot sin, it means that he cannot sin against you. And if God cannot sin against you, doesn't make that make him the most trustworthy being that exists? And so when we believe that God has our best interest in mind based on the goodness and the holiness of his character, it will cause us to truly love him for who he is in his beauty and his awe and his wonder. And then we will naturally let our hearts set our affections on him because he's worthy of it. See, we don't, we don't, I'm not asking you to love something and to force yourself to love something that isn't worthy of it. That's not how, our, how we work, right? We don't just love things that we don't like. We don't love things that aren't worthy of being loved. And God is worthy of all of our love and more. And so how do we do that? Moses gives us this answer as well. He says we worship God and we show the world a character. And we worship God and show the world his character when we care about the things that God cares about and act accordingly. So what do I mean by that? In verse 17 through 19, Scripture words this as, um, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And in 17 and 19 to 19, he talks about, um, sorry, i got to turn to that here. He talks about loving um, the people, loving widows and orphans, right? And, and the fatherless. And I want to read it again. Verse 17 says this, 
Uh, for the Lord your God of, is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, great, great and mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you, you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. And so we love the Lord our God. And this gets at the moral heart of the law. God has blessed his people. He's blessed them with his presence. And he's blessed them with this land of promise. So therefore, they must extend that blessing to the rest of the world around them. That was the story of his story and his intentions from the beginning. And so God, being the most powerful being that exists, decides to use that power to defend the powerless. And he defends the least of those among us. He cares about them. And so as a result, because he did that for us, we are to do that for others out of that same love and care and compassion. And so we help people by meeting their physical needs when we are able, and we meet their spiritual needs in Christ as well. We go out of our way to serve family and friends that God has already placed in our life around us every day. We welcome the outsiders in our lives with open arms and we give them a place to belong and to be a part of a family. We show them honor and we treat them as respected guests. We welcome them into meaningful engagement and real relationships from the very beginning. Whether it's here at church or whether it's on your campus, in your dorm room, in your home, at your job, wherever God might have you. When we are given positions of power over others, whether that be a leadership role in church, or if you're leading your family, or if you're supervising people at work, we understand that God has sovereignly appointed us Christians into these roles to serve others and not our own interests. We don't show partiality to the people that we think are better than others or like ourselves. And we do the right thing no matter what somebody would offer us to do otherwise. We are to forgive others when they sin against us. And we are to show them grace and mercy and seek forgiveness where it's appropriate and where we are able to. And we desire to find reconciliation for ourselves and for others. God's people are to show the world a different way of life. That's what, that's what Moses was trying to show the Israelites. And we're to show them a different way of life in a way that would cause them to wonder, what kind of God do these people serve that they would act and that they would treat me in such a way that I have never seen before? What causes these people to be so selfless? And this calling is just as much collective for us, the big capital C church, as it is for individuals as well. The responsibility of welcoming and caring for the the fatherless and the orphans and the widow doesn't just fall on a few people. It's not just for our full-time pastors. It's not just for your small group Bible study leader. It's not just the appointed prayer or connect team of the week to greet the visitors. It's not just your campus ministry's staff responsibility to go out and share the gospel on campus and connect with new people. No, it's the responsibility lies on every single one of us in the church collectively to be a welcoming community that blesses the people around us, the people that God puts in our life every single day. And in order to please God and live up to his standard on our own, we have to do all of that and more. We have to keep every command written in this book 
in order to have a shot at any kind of relationship with God on our own, of our own efforts. And not just external rule following either. Moses tells us that our heart motivation matters just as much if we decided that we wanted to do this on our own apart from his help. And so if we decided that, if we were going to do it on our own, not only do we have to get all of it right, every single word in this part of Scripture, we have to do it for the exact right reason as well. Every day, every moment, every opportunity, do the right thing for the right reason. No, no room for any mistakes. Aaron's sons, as we saw a few weeks ago in Exodus, lost their lives when they messed this up. And that's what will happen for us in the end if we're relying on ourselves and our own efforts if we mess up even one time. So I hope as I say all those things and, and, and bring that weight down of what the law really means, I hope you're feeling a little bit overwhelmed in this moment or even sitting there going, I think you're missing something. Because I have been leaving something out up until this point. If you're trying to do this all on your own, you should be overwhelmed. You should be a little bit afraid of what the results of, the, of your life are going to be. Because it's in our nature to fail, as we see in Genesis chapter 3. Even if we won't admit it, you, we all know it. Think about it. You know all the things you did wrong when you were a kid, let alone as an adult. You know there's moments in your life I know that we can all think of right now where we can specifically remember where you did the right thing, but you did it begrudgingly. Your heart wasn't in it. You haven't, we haven't, none of us have loved the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength as we would desire to. We've all pushed away foreigners and not stood up for those who didn't have a voice in a moment when we knew we could have said something. We don't fully understand what it means to fear God, so we take his presence lightly. We throw his name around on things that we shouldn't throw his name on, and we, we pretend to care, that he cares about things that he doesn't care about, and we, and we put his name on our agenda to make it seem like it has validity. We flat out ignored God's commandments because our, our own way, a lot of days, seems better. A lot of days I wake up and I really feel like my way to do life is the best way to do it, and God's way is just too hard today. And the hard truth is, is that we really all need a new heart if we want to love the Lord and love others as he expects us to in this passage and in the law. And so thankfully, spoiler alert, God has not left it all up to us. This, this, that was never his plan from the beginning. He was never going to just give us the law and, go, and hope that we were going to make it on our own. And as we're saying, the, the whole idea of this series is that Jesus is the thread that has been woven through every single scripture story, and he is still at work in that story right now. So God, like I said, wasn't just going to give the law and say, good luck, hope you make it, heaven's probably going to be a little empty. No, the system of sacrifices that we talked about a few weeks ago in Leviticus was set up in order for the people of Israel to be able to confess their sins in a way that was adequate for that period in history. And they paid the price for their sin by killing their own animals in their place and imparting their sin on those animals. So we talked about those, and if you weren't here for that and you wanted to listen to it, it's a beautiful, beautiful passage. And also it's beauty and gruesome at the same time. And so in that system, law and sacrifices combined together, God made this system that allowed the people to live in his presence for the time being until the timing was right for the Messiah to come. 
And that, all of that law and all of those sacrifices set the stage for Jesus. That was the whole point of having the law and the sacrifices. It was to point to something greater. And so when Jesus came, he spent around 33 years on this planet. And he kept the law, every last word of it, perfectly for 33 years. He never faltered once. He was tempted, as we are, but he never faltered in that. He put others for himself and served the people every single moment, every single opportunity for the right reason. He never did the right thing for the wrong reason. He did it with a pure heart every single time. He never stretched the truth even a little bit. He never told a white lie to get something that he, didn't, that he thought he deserved. His heart never wavered from loving the Father with every, every ounce of being that he had. And so he did that. He lived a sinless life. He lived the perfect life in perfection. He never needed a sacrifice to make up the difference between him and God. He didn't need it because he was fully God and fully man at the same time. That's what God sent him empowered here to do. And what did that sinless life earn the Son of God? Not what we would have written in the story for him, that's for sure. He was set up as the final sacrificial lamb. God raised him up without a blemish so that he could be the final, once and for all, atoning sacrifice for our sins. God allowed his own son to be the object of his wrath. God allowed his own son to really see what it meant to fear God firsthand in that last moments on the cross. Jesus took all of the blame of the, for the sins of humanity in one final sacrifice. And in doing that, he fulfilled God's law perfectly, every single word of it, and made a new way for us to be made holy and righteous before God in his eyes. And so now when we choose to believe it, God, Jesus gives that perfect record to us. If you choose to believe and accept the sacrifice on the cross was enough for you, if you choose to believe that Jesus truly was the Son of God, that he was sent here by God and of God, if you believe that he really did live a life that had no sin, and if you believe that he rose again on the third day in victory over Satan, sin, and death, then Jesus has given you that new heart that we need to live out the commands in the law the way that God has designed us to do it. You are loved and accepted by God based on the perfection of Jesus, not anything you've done, and you're no longer left to make it on your own under the weight and the overwhelming gravity of the law. And so then, this actually adds a new command for us um, in verses 12 through 13 that comes even before fear the, fear the Lord. Now the most important command for us Christians and people living on this side of Jesus is to receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And once that happens for us, it transforms how we ought to view the law, the law of the Lord. Because Jesus gives us a new heart, he takes out our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, as he says in Ezekiel, that heart now gives us the freedom to truly love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves. We're free because we're free from the obligation. We're free to just do it because God has allowed us to do it so we can. So now instead of we love the foreigners among us because we have to, 
in order to maintain a relationship with God with us, we live in the reality now, because my sins are forgiven, because my relationship with God is secure and can't be taken away from me, now I'm free to love God and serve the fatherless because my heart overflows with the grace and the mercy that God has already given me. So naturally now I need to go and give that to the others in, in the world around me. I've seen this true beauty, and so now I must go and tell everybody else about it. It's natural. Paul says it this way in Colossians 3, in one of my favorite scripture chapters in all the Bible. Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with Him in glory. I long for that day. And it's like I said earlier on, if you get the first commandment right, the others will fall into place. And except now, we have the Holy Spirit to help that process happen, living inside of us, the presence of God inside of us every single day to help that process happen. So, for those of us who have decided to follow Christ with our lives, what does this mean for us? What are we actually supposed to do? Because we talk about it a lot, but oftentimes it it's hard to piece together, okay, when we actually get, go outside of those doors this morning, what are we supposed to do? Well, the first thing, as, as we're seeing this, is set your minds on the things of God in every moment of every day. And we know, and set your minds on the things of what He cares about. Know what He cares about. And we know what He cares about by looking at the life of Jesus and studying the law in the Scriptures. God has given us what we need, everything that we need in the Bible. And sure, you're still going to mess up every single day. Like I said, I wake up many days thinking that my way is better than God's, even still today. We've all far from arrived. But we're free now to run right back to Jesus and seek forgiveness and reconciliation with him right then and there when we catch ourselves doing that. Because we're no longer slaves with no way out of our sin. We were beggars, and now we're, we're royalty. We were prisoners in our sin, but now we get to run free. We are forgiven, we are accepted, and we are redeemed by grace. And so in Colossians 3.17, So whatever we do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So learn about this week and going forward in the rest of your life following Jesus. Learn about God and who He is. Study what it means for Him to be holy and righteous. Learn to fear his character and take joy in that, in the deep, beautiful truth of the gospel, that you are free from the wrath that makes him worthy of fear. Don't take advantage anymore of being in the presence of God and living in his presence with you every day. The Israelites could only dream of the access that we get to have with God through the Holy Spirit. If you look in Exodus, every single time Moses went to the tent of meeting, to meet with God. Every single Israelite, men and women, would go to the edge of their tent and they would stand there and they would go and they would watch and they would see the pillar of God descend on that tent of meeting and they would watch intently with longing for the, longing for the day that they could meet with God like that and not have to witness that through Moses. So we fear him and we hold God in awe and reverence and we, and we do the same with Jesus when we approach the throne of God. 
and we, but we also, with that, because of what Jesus has done, we also approach him boldly in the freedom of the forgiveness that Jesus has given to us. And we approach him with that every single day and ask him for opportunities to share the love and spread the love of, well, through what Jesus has given us. Just in that day, he's given us enough grace for today. And so then moving uh, kind of with that then, so what about us as Chester Park? Rock, what should we do as Rock Hill Chester Park in light of the passage this morning? Well, I think that as Christians here in this room as a family, we need to hold each other to the standard that Moses puts forward and here in our gatherings and when we're out in the community together. Because we are called as the people of God to be a welcoming community for all those who come in our midst. So let's actually make sure that we're doing our part to defend the cause of the fatherless and the widow. Let's make sure we're doing our part to be a welcoming community here this morning. In other words, God has given, called us to use our gospel-given freedom to continue to serve others and point them to Christ, just as Jesus had done. So let's get into the deep mess of our community. Let's start to explore ways that we can reach out to the, to the neighborhood and to those around us and get deep right into the mess and into the muck. Let's hear the people's stories of our city. Let's encourage them with truth and love. Let's give, give ourselves opportunities to provide for them in any way that we can. Let's do what we can to meet the needs of those around us and not forget that we were once lost and broken just as way they were. We're no different than they were. And until someone was bold and kind enough to point us the way back to Christ, we didn't have a hope at freedom just as they don't if we don't do the same thing for them. And so finally this morning as I close, if you've realized this morning that you've been trying to do this all on your own without Jesus, our final call for you this morning is to believe the truth of the gospel. And if you need to re-believe that this morning, or if you need to believe that for the first time, that is also our call. You can't hope to earn your way into heaven. It's not possible. And so even if you're sitting here this morning still trying to figure this all out, trying to put some things together, there's still no better opportunity than to enter into new life with Christ right now. Come up out of your grave and out of your sin and confess your sins before God and, and tell Jesus that I need your life and your perfect sin to be in place of mine. You don't have to have all of your ducks in a row. This isn't about cleaning yourself up before coming to Jesus. That isn't part of the equation. No, you can confess your sinfulness to Jesus right now and you can move forward in new life right here. And even if you know Christians this morning that you are living in a deep and a dark sinful place in your life, you can confess that sin this morning and move forward in that freedom to live a life, to live the life that God has designed for you. And then you can join in with us, and I'll invite the worship team to come up. You can join us right now as we start to move on for the first time, or maybe as you restart your faith in singing songs of praise and thanksgiving to our God for all that he's done and all that he will do in and through us. Jesus is the thread that has been running through every story. He's in the first five books of the Bible. He's in the prophets and in the judges and in the stories that we're going to see in the coming weeks. He's in your story this morning. And he's ready for every single one of us right now to commit to living a life, whether, we, whether 
we're laying more things aside in our lives for those of us that didn't follow in Christ or if we're laying down our own path this morning for the very first time. He's ready for us to do that right now and to become the community that Jesus designed Israel to be from the very beginning. One that welcomes the stranger. One that fears God and holds him in reverence. One that spreads love and transformation to the, to the community of Duluth around us in Superior and UMD and St. Glasgow, wherever he has with us. That's the call. That's the idea. That's the story of Scripture. And that's what I want us all to keep in mind as we go through the rest of these 66 books and hear more and more beautiful stories of what Jesus has done. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, um, we all come to you with weights and with hurts and with things that we know get in the way of living our lives the way that you'd have us do so. And so, God, for all of us, I pray that we would just confess our sins to you even in this moment. That the things that we know get, get, that get in the way and the, and the darkness that we hold so close and think and we love, God, help us to see that your ways are better than ours. That, Jesus, your love and your law and your sacrifices for us have given us the ability to move forward and to move away from those things. And that, God, your character gives us reason to trust you, that your ways are better than ours. And so, Jesus, I pray for every single one of us this morning, whether it's for the first time or for the millionth time, that we would choose to trust you above all else. That we would choose to be your people and live in the way that you have called us to do so that we could be a blessing to the world around us. Thank you, Jesus, and it's your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.